Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for October 14th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile, and I'm very excited to welcome you to this week's edition of the program, your source each Friday for insightful analysis from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate law developments. This week's show considers a brand new appellate review standard in the Ninth Circuit and a venerable member of the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who began her 24th term earlier this month when the court reconvened. First, Ian Fine of ORIC will visit to discuss the case of Animal Legal Defense Fund versus FDA, a recent Ninth Circuit reversal that overturned the court's precedent in the context of Freedom of Information Act appeals. A panel previously affirmed the case in April under the old deferential standard of review, but in that ruling, the three judges concurred together in asking the circuit's judges to vote en banc to reconsider the review standard. An en banc court did just that and replaced the deferential clear error standard with a more exacting appellate test for FOIA cases like ALDF, which was disposed of at the summary judgment stage, notwithstanding some material factual disputes. Mr. Fine played a role in the appeal and will discuss its impact on future FOIA litigation. Then, as the U.S. Supreme Court begins its new term, Scott Dodson, professor of law at UC Hastings, will chat about his recent book on one of the court's longest tenured and most revered members, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Dodson edited and contributed to the book, which features essays from noted legal minds and correspondents, including Nina Totenberg, Dahlia Lithwick, and Neil and Riva Siegel, and which is the first comprehensive treatment of Ginsburg's life and legacy. The book, with both personal anecdotes and doctrinal analyses, explains the outsized impact Ginsburg has made upon constitutional law, particularly in the areas of equal protection analysis and gender equality, as well as civil procedure and federal court jurisdiction. But before we get to our guests, I'd like to remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for listeners of the podcast. You can find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Take that, and one hour of CLE credit is yours. With that, let's move now to my discussion with Ian Fine of ORIC on the new appellate review standard in the Ninth Circuit after ALDF first FDA. We're joined now by Ian Fine, a managing associate with ORIC, where he's a member of the firm's litigation group and Supreme Court and appellate practice, and he played a part in the appeal that we'll be talking about momentarily. Mr. Fine, welcome to the program. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. So we're talking about the case of ALDF, the Animal Legal Defense Fund versus the FDA, which has knocked around a bit in the Ninth Circuit over the past few months, and for which a ruling was rendered at the end of September, which essentially changes the standard of review, appellate review, in cases such as this This was a Freedom of Information Act. The ALDF had sought some information from the FDA, which had withheld portions of the requested information. A district court sided with the FDA on review. Originally, the Ninth Circuit had applied a clear error standard. Uh, Now, as a result of the ruling a couple of weeks ago, it's going to apply a new standard to a de novo review. So why until now just recently was this particularly deferential review standard applied in these FOIA actions? Um, I guess the answer is it's not It's not exactly clear. Um, it, it originated, the, the notion of a deferential appellate standard originated in a footnote in a D.C. Circuit opinion way back in 1977. And several courts, including the Ninth Circuit, just sort of adopted that standard without really um, analyzing it. And even though the D.C. Circuit only a few years later itself, when it went back and revisited the question, realized it probably wasn't right um, and so changed its own standard, the other courts sort of kept following it um, moving forward. Uh, To the extent that they did provide a rationale, it was that, you know, FOIA cases are generally a little bit different in that one side has possession of the documents and the other side is trying to get possession of them and doesn't always know what they actually contain. So 
um, the typical adversarial process um, is perhaps slightly different. And so, you know, one of the mechanisms that exist in FOIA is for the district court to take um, in-camera review of the of the materials um, and to then base its decision on its own um, its own review of the materials. And so that does in some ways look more like uh, a fa factual finding process than a legal conclusion. So I think there was an inclination by the appellate courts, um, you know, who didn't necessarily want to have to re-review every single document that the district court did to accept the district court's characterizations of the redacted materials and uh, sort of apply that unless there was a, a clear error. The panel mentioned that in certain appeals of rulings like this, and this decision came at, a, at the summary judgment stage of litigation, that certain FOIA appellate reviews would, would receive a de novo review, but ones like this where there was maybe a bit of factual inquiry would, would, would get the more deferential de novo standard. What's the difference between those two types of cases that the panel mentions? Unpacking that a little bit, I think it's that um, in in every case, there's usually, there are some legal questions. I mean, I guess, a, you know, the legal questions of what test applies, what substantive test applies to a particular exemption under FOIA. Um, you know, that's that's obviously a legal question as opposed to a factual one. Um, and then I believe uh, the Ninth Circuit also kind of applied a threshold question of whether the, um, whether the the district court had an adequate factual basis to um, to rule at summary judgment, and the Ninth Circuit applied a de novo standard to that as well. So, um, I, I guess it was it was more that the court, uh, at least as I understood it, that the Ninth Circuit kind of always recognized that there would generally be some legal questions or some de novo questions um, when it was reviewing a summary judgment ruling in a FOIA case, but that you know until recently it was willing to allow the district court to actually make factual findings on disputed issues, and then it would only review those for clear error. Could we tease that out a bit more, the clear error standard? As you say, it's quite deferential. Just how deferential is it? What exactly is the inquiry with the, the clear error review? And how, in this case, was it applied by the, the panel back in April when it first uh, had affirmed the district court's ruling? I would say what's, what's probably even more important um, about the court's uh, on bank ruling is it's less, you know, I mean, the clear error versus de novo standard is def is definitely important, but I think uh, perhaps even more important than that was this notion that the district court at the summary judgment stage was able to make factual findings on disputed issues. Um, and then that, so that it's more, it was more the summary judgment framework overall that the court, that the Ninth Circuit was applying to uh, FOIA cases. Um, not, it wasn't just the appellate review standard. So, so the district courts were being allowed to make factual findings on disputed issues, and then the Ninth Circuit would review those factual findings only for clear error. So in our case, um, you know, the parties, it was an exemption four case, so a lot of the dispute uh, below turned on, you know, um, not what information was actually in these redacted um, the redacted documents, but rather what effect release of the of that redacted information might have. And so both parties submitted competing expert declarations. And, you know, therefore, there was, as the panel concurrence noted, and as it ultimately ruled, um, there was clearly a factual dispute, a gen genuine issue of material fact um, that went to the heart of whether this information could be withheld. And, um, you know, under traditional summary judgment standards, that would mean that summary judgment was inappropriate and they would have to proceed on to um, to, to, to the next stage of litigation. 
Um, but under the Ninth Circuit's earlier standards, the district court was able to sort of decide which uh, expert declaration it found more persuasive and to issue a summary judgment ruling on that basis. And so the panel, in its initial ruling, um, you know, felt it was compelled to affirm under the pre-existing precedent because um, the, the district court's decision to, to reach a factual finding on the disputed issue was not clearly erroneous. There was at least some, you know, some basis in the declarations for the court to rule that way, even if the Ninth Circuit thought that was actually wrong. Um, and so now that the Ninth Circuit has corrected its standard and traditional summary judgment standards apply, it was, you know, it was, it was inappropriate for the district court to make that decision at summary judgment as to which declaration it wanted to credit over the other. Could you tell me a bit more about the concurrence that you mentioned in the April ruling where the, the panel procurium altogether called for, for a change in the review standard? What was the, the panel's particular concern? Was it that there had been some factual dispute that they wouldn't really get a chance to review considering that the clear error was what they were bound by? Yeah, you know, so again, I think it, it's less the, it was less the clear error versus de novo than it was the fact that, you know, that there was a you know, disputed material factor meant that summary judgment was inappropriate. Um, and, uh, and the panel's concurrence said as much and said that under traditional summary judgment standards, um, you know, there would have, summary judgment was inappropriate here and um, uh, the, the case should have proceeded. And so, but it, but it felt that it couldn't, you know, couldn't reach that uh, holding under the pre-existing precedent. Your firm was part of the oral argument and the original appeal in which that ruling came down with the concurrence arguing that the standard should be changed. Was that, uh, was that part of your argument before the panel, that this, uh, the standard applied was, was too deferential? It was. Uh, there had actually been, I want to say, at least one or two earlier Ninth Circuit panels that um, had sort of flagged this as a, uh, as a nagging concern and um, questioning whether the, the precedent was correct. And the panels in those cases didn't have to squarely address it just because they were able to resolve the cases on other grounds or they found that, you know, affirmance would have been uh, appropriate even under de novo. Um, but it was clear that there were at least a number of judges on the Ninth Circuit who didn't think this was right. Um, there was also a clear circuit split on the issue. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, the um, the D.C. Circuit, which sort of was the first to, to adopt the clear error standard itself later rever uh, reversed that position and now uh, for a long time has applied a de novo standard. So it was clear that this was something that was potentially ripe for reconsideration at the Ninth Circuit. So we did make the argument. We, um, you know, argued it. Of course, you can't argue to a three-judge panel that it uh, that it not apply circuit precedent. So our, our argument, you know, flagged this as a concern and, um, you know, made some arguments as to why we thought, um, you know, the court could potentially distinguish this case from others in which it had applied a clear error standard. But we certainly briefed it, um, and it was a very conscious decision at the at the panel stage to to preserve this issue um, and to to put it front and center before the panel. Just as a matter of appellate jurisprudence, how how rarely do you encounter concurrences like this that call the, the circuit to get together and reconsider whether it's you know sort of doing things the right way with it in terms of questions of this nature? Were you surprised at all to see the panel call the en banc's attention to this issue? You know, it's not it's not frequent, but you'll. You'll definitely see often, um, you know, one judge on a panel maybe write separately in a concurrence, um, uh, flagging something as a concern or um, suggesting that maybe something deserved to be reconsidered. Um, 
but this was definitely for the for you know all three judges on the panel to issue a unanimous um, per curiam concurrence and to you know not only sort of question what or you know suggest that something you know might be wrong but it, it was it was a quite a forceful concurrence that really laid out um some pretty strong arguments as to why why it was wrong and why it you know it, they i think they used the word they urged the court to um the full court to rehear it on bank so yeah it was it was very strong it was um you know we weren't as we as i said we were uh we, we felt that that the issue was one that was definitely ripe for reconsideration at the Ninth Circuit. But, um, you know, I think the, the, the strength, the unanimity and the real forcefulness of the concurrence was definitely, um, definitely eye-opening. Yeah, it definitely was, was strong language used there. Certainly, I'm sure was noticed by a lot of uh, attorneys paying attention, and obviously the uh, you know the rest of the, the circuit judges noted it as well. Um, and that concurrence, did the panel touch on, and we've teased this out a bit, the fact that there are some policy considerations suggesting that a deferential standard here um, in FOIA appeals is, is necessary. Um, but did the panel note why, potentially in this case, those policy considerations you know, really aren't that compelling? You know, they did. They did make the distinction that, you know, I guess, to the extent that anyone, any other court had justified this, which there was often the stand, the previous standard was not really justified. But to the extent any court had tried to justify it, it was usually on, you know, some of the grounds we discussed before that, you know, these materials are reviewed in camera, and, um, you know, the the district court is making things that look look like factual findings, and it. it I guess, I don't know if the courts always said this out loud, but, you know, it seemed like the appellate courts didn't necessarily want to have to redo all the district court's work uh, itself in that regard. Um, but the panel, the concurrence did note that, uh, that you know, even if that justification was persuasive, it didn't necessarily extend to the situation we had here where uh, the the question wasn't what was what was in the materials. The question was what effect would release of those materials have? And I don't think any court had ever justified why, uh, in that scenario, um, the district court should be able to make, you know, make uh, uh, resolve disputed facts at summary judgment, uh, or why that should be uh, that resolution should be deferred to by the appellate court. And you know, I think the panel then went on and suggest, you know, I think rightfully so, noted that even if there were these pol- these slight uh, policy concerns pointing one way in certain situations, that there just there really was no sound legal basis. To depart from the traditional summary judgment standard here, there's nothing in you know federal rule. By definition, summary judgment is only available uh, under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 56, where there's no genuine dispute as to any material fact. You know, and, and nothing in FOIA itself uh, changes that. So it's hard to see, you know, why what what basis a district court would have to to resolve disputed facts at the summary judgment stage in a FOIA case. And and even further than that, FOIA also the panel noted in its concurrence that the pre-existing standard was also contrary to FOIA's history and purpose. And FOIA very explicitly uh, requires um, de novo review of the agency's decision. So rather than deferring to the agency's decision to withhold information, um, the the statute very expressly requires courts to to give a rigorous review uh, of those decisions. And that was because FOIA's whole purpose was to promote the the publication and the release of government documents. So where FOIA itself requires de novo rather than deferential review of the agency's decision to withhold information, there's really no basis anywhere in the statute to suggest that the appellate courts should then apply a deferential review instead of also applying de novo review to the summary judgment ruling. 
Yeah, you definitely got the sense from reading that concurrence that the circuit had been doing it this way for a while, and, and sort of that was the reason why it was still doing it. But maybe upon second look, there wasn't a whole lot of justification for it. So after the, the ruling in, in April, the, in the ball sort of in the court of the, the en banc panel, they vote to, to rehear the matter and issue an order without hearing arguments. Could you tell me what the, what that order entailed and why the, uh, the en banc court decided to, to change the standard of review here? Yeah, I mean, the, the on-bank court basically uh, adopted a lot of the arguments that were laid out in the panel concurrence and that uh, we had also laid out in our um, petition for a rehearing and bank um, is some of what we just discussed a second ago. There's just really is no, there's no legal basis um, to allow this entirely different summary judgment framework in FOIA cases. You know, I think, you know, one thing that was notable was um, after we filed our for petition for rehearing on bank, the the panel ordered the government to um, the FDA to file a response, and the FDA's response really did not def- defend the standard of review at all. It um, it sort of tried to change the subject by arguing for affirmance on other grounds. But I think that the on bank court, once it once it granted on bank review, it, it must have you know taken that as a pretty strong sign that that the even 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 the government, which is generally wins a lot of these summary judgment rulings, and so therefore would obviously have a good stake in arguing for um, a deferential clear error review. You know, the, the notion that they weren't going to present any arguments in their response um, to our petition for rehearing um, in favor of the clear error standard, I think probably was a, a pretty strong signal to the on-bank court that there really weren't any great arguments on that other side. So that uh, probably made them feel comfortable to, to decide it without oral argument at the on-bank stage. You've touched on it a bit so far that the particular concern of the uh, the appellate court is potentially less so with the difference between clear error and de novo and, and more so the fact that here there was some disputed issues of material fact and yet the case was disposed of at the summary judgment stage. Of course, in, in FOIA cases going forward, so now the appellate standard has changed, but does this ruling give any instruction to lower courts that in future cases where there's some disputed expert testimony like this, where there are genuine issues of material fact, that uh, summary judgment just really isn't appropriate in that context? Yes, that's right. I mean, I think the on-bank court says that explicitly. It says, uh, I think it refers to, um, you know, when when there are disputed issues of material fact, that, that it has to proceed to the, the crucible of an adversarial hearing and um, and a potential trial, and, um, you know, that the parties, each party should be entitled to um, cross-examine each other's experts, and that you know that those are the the, the rules of procedure that we've established for um, you know resolving disputed issues of material fact, and um, FOIA cases are are no different. Maybe one last one to wrap up. What are sort of the most important things that were at stake in this ruling? Now that the circuit has agreed to to do things a bit differently in terms of appellate review of FOIA cases, what uh, what is gained? Why is this the right standard? So the the purpose of FOIA is clear. It's um, to uh, allow the public to gain access to government information and to to learn what our government is up to. And that that purpose is uh, explicit. It's important and it's critical. And you know the FOIA and the citizen suit provisions of FOIA um, are, are there, and, the, and the, so that public can contest the government's decision to withhold certain information. And um, like I said, we discussed earlier, FOIA uh, requires rigorous judicial review of the agency's decision to withhold anything. And um, I think this this ruling by the Ninth Circuit is important to um, to ensuring that FOIA operates properly and that. Um, the agency's decisions to withhold information will be reviewed rigorously, uh, not only at the district court level, but also um, at the Court of Appeals. 
Okay, well, then this case will go forward and, and meet more of that uh, exacting judicial review that you suggest it should, and that, that uh, the FOIA statute suggests that it should. For now, we'll leave it there. And Mr. Ian Fine, Managing Associate with ORIC, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Once again, that was Ian Fine of ORIC discussing the Ninth Circuit's new appellate review standard that is the upshot of the court's ruling in ALDF versus FDA. We'll move now to my discussion with Professor Scott Dodson of UC Hastings, editor of the book The Legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We're joined now by Professor Scott Dodson of UC Hastings College of the Law. He's an associate dean for research, the Harry and Lillian Hastings Research Chair and Professor of Law, who focuses on civil procedure in federal courts. Professor Dodson's a prolific writer as well with publications in Stanford, NYU, and, and Pennsylvania Law Reviews, just to name a few. And he's also a contributor to SCOTUS blog and other legal-related blogs. And as well, the editor of the book we'll be discussing today, The Legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Professor Dodson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. It's really great to be here. Before we get into this book, which I just found was a tremendously fascinating read and somewhat timely to discuss now that we're getting into October term 2016, I believe, Justice Ginsburg's 24th on the court. Tell me about how this project came to be, how you conceived it, and what particularly attracts you to Justice Ginsburg. Admittedly, I'm not the most natural person to do a book on Justice Ginsburg. I don't know her. I'm not a court insider. I don't have the background in women's rights or equal protection, the areas for which she's largely known. I'm basically a civil procedure geek uh, who finds interesting all the stuff that most lawyers and legal scholars find pretty boring. But uh, as it turns out, I think Ginsburg is kind of a civil procedure geek, too. She taught the subject when she was a law professor, and I think she appreciates the technical and careful approach that procedure demands. In fact, she has said that she'd write all of the court's opinions on civil procedure if only her colleagues would let her. So she ends up writing uh, many, of course, and as a result, my own teaching and writing crossed her opinions uh, time and time again. So I kind of felt a kindred spirit from afar. And of course, I knew of her greater legal legacy and impact. Um, but I also thought there was a more holistic story to be told about someone who has spent an amazing 50-plus years in law, and I was also willing to take on the role of spearheading the project. So I uh, reached out to some of her former clerks and received very positive reactions to the project, and I also wrote to uh, Justice Ginsburg herself with a heads up, and she was extremely gracious about it, and that's pretty much how it came to be. Obviously, a very long career, both as an advocate, professor, and jurist, a career it sounds like you know certainly a decent amount about, but I'm sure there must have been things that you learned throughout this project as different folks contributed essays to the book. What are some of the things that you perhaps didn't know at the start of this project that you came to learn about Justice Ginsburg? Yeah, I knew about her legacy on the court, combating gender discrimination, and of course, I knew about her work in civil procedure. Um, but I knew very little about her time before becoming a justice, including some of the personal anecdotes um, that exist in the book. And I knew almost nothing about her opinions in other areas. Um, and learning uh, her accomplishments in um, her time before the court and uh, in some of her opinions that I was not very familiar with revealed uh, something uh, pretty interesting to me, and that's that she's been remarkably consistent across time and across doctrines. Uh, many Supreme Court justices end up sort of 
floating from the more conservative side to the more liberal side or vice versa. Um, they sometimes switch opinions or uh, doctrines uh, in their career on the Supreme Court. But uh, Justice Ginsburg really has been um, pretty consistent in her approach to a number of different doctrines. And uh, so that was something that I uh, learned when I was doing the editing for the book. One particular consistency, obviously, she's always been known throughout her career as an advocate and a jurist for, for gender equality and for women's rights. Many of your contributors make this point that she was sort of particularly well-suited to be the person to champion that cause and to be a Supreme Court justice to advance it. Could you tell me a bit about some of the impediments that she personally faced in her early career to read about some of them in this book, uh, a generation removed from them? I mean, some of them just sound so anachronistic, very hard to believe there would be things that a woman would encounter not that long ago. Yeah, uh, you and I must be of the same generation. Um, a couple of examples in which Ginsburg faced gender discrimination firsthand. And, and I have to give great props to Nina Totenberg and Herma Hill Kay and Dolly Lithwick for their wonderful chapters detailing some of these events, which generally took place before she became a judge. Uh, some that stand out include her time at Harvard Law School, where she was one of nine women out of a matriculating class of more than a uh, 500, and uh, the dean held a reception for the nine women. It was a it was a tea, no less, and went around the room asking each woman why she thought she deserved a place in the class that otherwise would have gone to a man. And I think she still has a bit of a chip on her shoulder from her time at Harvard. So she eventually transferred to Columbia Law School to be with her husband Marty, who had secured a position at a law firm in New York City. And she graduated first in her class from Columbia, but she was unable to get a judicial clerkship with the Supreme Court or the Second Circuit because of her gender. Um, though one of her professors was able to strong-arm a district judge into hiring her, uh, subject to the promise of a replacement male clerk if she did not work out. So she started her academic career teaching at Rutgers Law School. Um, and one of the earliest experiences there was when the dean explained to her that it was only fair to pay her less than her male colleagues because her husband had a very good job in New York. Um, she also had to hide her second pregnancy while she was uh, teaching at Rutgers until she had been reappointed. Um, and so she experienced the kind of gender discrimination that in today's culture we've uh, uh, come to think unthinkable. Uh, and to her credit, I think Ginsburg recognized those experiences as products of the times. Uh, now, that didn't uh, prevent her from remembering them and to dedicating a great part of her life to reversing them and making things uh, easier and fairer for women everywhere. Uh, but I don't think she necessarily harbored uh, great resentment or animosity uh, for those particular experiences. As you say, we've certainly come a long way since then, and to no small measure, I think that can be credited to Justice Ginsburg's work beginning, uh, I believe, when she was an advocate for the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. Though her overall aim in that role with the Women's Rights Project was to advance the situation of women, and I believe Nina Totenberg makes this point in her essay. It's interesting, she often would seek out appeals that involved male plaintiffs. What was the strategy behind this? So Ginsburg uh, knew two things. First, she knew that the problem was not just subordination of women, but it was rather the entrenchment of gender roles, roles that could afflict men too. 
And just as women were not supposed to be breadwinners, uh, you know, men were not supposed to be caregivers. And Ginsburg understood that dismantling gender roles for men could be effective in helping dismantle gender roles for women, too. Second, uh, Ginsburg was always an astute legal advocate, and she knew her audience, uh, judges, who were almost uniformly old men. Uh, On the Supreme Court, they were all old men, and they were far more likely to be sympathetic to a man who needed to, say, stay at home to care for his ailing mother than a woman who wanted to be CEO of a major company. So one example um, detailed in the book was a case called Moritz versus Commissioner. And Moritz was a bachelor who had had some expenses caring for his mother. And the tax code at the time allowed a dependent care deduction for caring for a family member, but only if the caregiver was a woman, a widower, or a divorced man. There was no provision for a single man. Moritz, of course, was none of those, so the IRS denied his claim for a deduction of his expenses. So Ginsburg took that case and won on appeal on grounds of gender discrimination. And as a testament to the importance of the win, the government, who was defending the case, uh, appended to its opposition brief a list of all the federal statutes that contained gender differentiations in the law, ostensibly to try to tell the court how disruptive its ruling would be. But uh, Ginsburg couldn't have been happier because that list basically gave her a roadmap of all the laws that she would challenge over the next several years. As you say, it can be equally effective in advancing the cause of gender equality if you you challenge laws that reinforce stereotypes, whether those stereotypes apply to men or to women. Yeah, precisely. And of course, she represented many women too, but she was particularly fond of the cases that she could take in which men were the victims of those entrenched gender roles. Maybe we'll get into a a couple of specific cases. Many of them did involve women, as you say, including the case of Reed versus Reed, which predated some other major cases involving gender equality claims. But Linda Kerber, in your book, discusses this as a particularly important constitutional law advancement, though it doesn't always get so much attention. Yeah, so Reed was a 1971 case Uh, very early in the gender rights uh, movement, about a state law that preferenced men over women to be state administrators. Um, And Justice Ginsburg, at the time, it was just uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she took this case um, on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the court, for the very first time, ruled that the Equal Protection Clause prohibited gender discrimination. Uh, It was a seminal case that Ginsburg then later used as a um, benchmark for other laws that discriminated and differentiated based on gender. The decision was a unanimous decision from the Supreme Court, uh, which was a huge win for her. I take it then before that time, the Equal Protection Clause had generally been regarded as applying only to laws that discriminated between folks of different races and not genders? That's correct. There had been some sense from the court that it was willing to move the Equal Protection Clause broader than race, but it had not squarely held that until Reed. And then a few years later, another case, Frontiero versus Richardson, put an additional gloss onto the constitutional doctrine in this context. Ginsburg also played a role in that case, correct? Correct. So Frontiero was about a female Air Force lieutenant who was denied military benefits for her husband uh, because 
he made too much money. The law allowed male service members to receive military benefits for their wives, no matter how much the wives earned. So uh, Ginsburg argued this one, too, and she won again at the Supreme Court 8-1. And Frontiero essentially entrenches the holding in Reed that the uh, Equal Protection Clause generally uh, applies to gender differentiations in the law. The, the court didn't go so far as to say that there was any kind of heightened scrutiny applied, uh, but that uh, certain kinds of gender discriminations could be invalidated under the Equal Protection Clause. Sure. Another case that I thought was particularly interesting was brought up by Neil and Riva Siegel in their essay. Uh, in that case, uh, struck for Secretary of Defense, Ginsburg filed a brief before the Supreme Court, which had granted cert in the case, but never actually heard oral argument. Um, also interesting here, at the end of that essay, Justice Ginsburg herself added a note saying how much um, she was pleased to be reminded of that brief and how much it meant to her. Can you tell me a bit more about that case and that brief? Absolutely. Uh, Struck is a great example of Ginsburg's legacy, because even though the, a brief didn't result in a Supreme Court opinion that changed doctrine, it represents a lot of what uh, Ginsburg's efforts were geared towards. And it has implications beyond what we typically think of as Equal Protection Clause gender rights. So um, Struck, it, it did go to the Supreme Court, and uh, Ginsburg did write the brief arguing it, uh, but the Supreme Court ducked it on procedural grounds and didn't reach the merits of the issue. So the case presented the constitutionality of a law that forced women to separate from the military when they became pregnant, or in the alternative, to have an abortion. And uh, the brief that Ginsburg wrote was a tour de force linking gender equality with a woman's right to choose. And so the brief has implications for both gender equality and abortion. It really links those two issues together. Now, Interestingly, Struck, uh, the woman who was forced into that choice, was a Roman Catholic, and so she refused to have an abortion. What she wanted was to keep the child and her job. And Ginsburg's brief argued that in order to be afforded the status of full citizens in our society, women need to have full autonomy over their life decisions just as men do. In other words, women get the right to have both a job and children. So she really puts both gender equality and gender roles together with a woman's right to choose in the abortion context. And this actually comes up in some of her later abortion decisions. Another instance of things that are sort of hard to conceive that you have, would have to choose between a, a pregnancy and, and your profession. Yeah, and men generally don't have to choose that, at least um, in the kind of society that we live in where entrenched gender roles assume that women will be the caregivers to free men to be able to continue their jobs. Um, you know, I have to say that this has been eroded in substantial part by Justice Ginsburg's uh, efforts, and even the modern court recognizes that uh, those roles should not be entrenched by the law. Now, all, all these different efforts and all these different cases certainly leave this legacy of Justice Ginsburg as an advocate of, of women's rights and, and gender equality. But in one essay by Joan Williams, Ms. Williams mentions that there are certain brands of, of feminism that might be different from Justice Ginsburg's and certain feminists that might, in fact, be critical of her particular variety. Could you tell me what Joan Williams is getting at in, in this essay? So I'm not a feminist scholar, uh, and I'll 
So I'll leave sort of detailed exploration <laughs> issue to those more in the law and those interested in that particular chapter. But the, the basic idea is that uh, Ginsburg doesn't focus on men as the root problem. Uh, for her, the problem are the gender stereotypes that have been ingrained in society. And so in that vein, men can be just as much victims as women. Um, and Ginsburg's efforts have always been to dismantle those gender stereotypes that have dominated society. They've ended up keeping women from making choices that have uh, that have that would otherwise give women opportunities that men take for granted. But those same gender stereotypes have deprived men of choices to make that would give them opportunities to be at home or to care for an ailing family member or to take paternity leave. Um, her opinion in Virginia Military Institute, which is probably her most famous opinion, is, um, is indicative because there she concedes that some women, maybe many women, wouldn't want to attend that particular military academy with its um, particular culture and its rigorous standards. But as she wrote in the opinion, the law can't create a blanket rule that bans those women who do want to and who can meet those standards. So her style of feminism is very much on the um, scope of an individual, individual opportunities, individual choices. It's choice and opportunity based rather than an attack on men. Let's address that opinion a little bit more. Obviously, U.S. versus Virginia, the Virginia Military Institute ruling, sort of a watershed moment in gender equality doctrine. Could you tell me just a bit more about that case and, and particularly how Justice Ginsburg came to be its author and the gloss that it added to this area of constitutional law? Yeah, this is probably her most famous case. Uh, it's in all the con law case books as essentially the first case to articulate a heightened scrutiny for gender classifications in the law. The facts were pretty simple. A VMI was an all-male state military institute um, in Virginia. There was another state military institute that was all-female, but it was created kind of in the shadow of VMI uh, because the state recognized that it was um, going to have to offer at least something for women, but it wanted to keep the uh, gender classifications very sharply divided between VMI, uh, which was a very prestigious place, and the uh, female military academy, which was less so. And a woman wanted to attend VMI, but she was rejected based on her gender, and the case went to the Supreme Court. And Ginsburg, in an 8-1 opinion, uh, struck down the gender classification, essentially saying that uh, Virginia uh, couldn't discriminate against women in this way, that the uh, two military institutes were not equal, they were not equal opportunities, uh, and that um, it wasn't right anyway to create these kinds of gender classification barriers because there could be individual women who could meet the standards of VMI and who wanted to be a part of that institute, and there was no other reason for the state to deny them that opportunity. Um, she got the opinion, she wrote the opinion as the opinion's author. I think the Supreme Court papers suggest that the opinion was originally assigned to Justice O'Connor, who then demurred, saying that the opinion rightfully belonged to Justice Ginsburg based on her, essentially her life's work 
fighting for these kinds of issues. So obviously, Justice Ginsburg is writing for the majority in that case, but she had impacts on this area of the law as a dissenter as well, including in a few cases, one of them, Ledbetter versus Goodyear. Could you tell me particularly what happened there and how that advanced on gender equality? So Lily Ledbetter worked for Goodyear, and she, unknown to her, was being paid less than her similarly situated male counterpart. And she didn't actually know this because um, the salary structures were, you know, confidential. They were part of an employee's personnel file. Uh, Until she opened her locker one day and there was an anonymous note slipped in that said, you ought to find out because you're being paid less. Mm -hmm. So she did end up finding out that she was being paid less, and she sued Goodyear under the Equal Pay Act, uh, which prohibits pay disparities based on gender. Um, But because she didn't find out until... Later, the Supreme Court ruled that the statute doesn't allow uh, a woman to sue for uh, pay disparities that have happened too far back in the past. And uh, the court's decision on that point prevailed in a 5-4 decision. Ginsburg was in dissent, and she wrote a very forceful dissent, uh, saying that the remedial purpose of the statute was to correct pay disparities in gender, Uh, which still persists to this very day. Uh, And she read her dissent from the bench in a very powerful uh, statement of how wrong she thought the court was. Um, But she also said that even if the court had been right, it's ultimately up to Congress to be able to fix the law to make it fair, uh, either to overturn the court or to uh, basically restate what Congress had always intended in the first instance. And Congress did so. Uh, Congress passed the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. It was the first act that President Obama signed upon assuming the office of the presidency. And I believe Justice Ginsburg has a framed copy of the act in her chambers as one of her greatest successes. And this is a success that didn't take place on the bench. Um, So Ginsburg understands that dissents can be powerful tools even if you don't win that case, even at the Supreme Court, um, on statutory matters, there's always recourse to Congress. Certainly not her lone powerful dissent. In other contexts, she's dissented forcefully in recent years uh, in the case of Shelby v. Holder, which had overturned the Voting Rights Act, or at least a, a large portion of it. She also dissented in the Affordable Care Act case, at least to the point of whether the, the Commerce Clause allowed the individual mandate. Of some of those recent forceful dissents, do you think any will have any particular influence on either Congress or future courts? Some of those cases were constitutional decisions which make it hard for Congress to step in and and redo what uh, the court has said. Um, But I I do think that her dissents in some of those cases are important and meaningful. Um, Her case in Carhartt is a her dissent in Carhartt is a particularly meaningful one. That was a, a partial birth abortion case mm-hmm. in which uh, Justice Kennedy upheld the ban on partial birth abortions. And Kennedy had this kind of odd phrase where he indicated that you know some women regret having uh, made the decision that they made and that the law was designed in part to protect them from that regret. And uh, Ginsburg, uh, uh, in her dissent, attacked that particular part of Justice Kennedy's decision. 
as uh, quite patronizing um, and that the real power given to women and protection of women was the protection of their right to choose. Uh, and that was lost in the decision. So I think um, she has been a very forceful advocate on a court that has tried to scale back Roe versus Wade. Um, and Car- the Carhartt dissent that she wrote is a very powerful one. She also dissented in um, the Affordable Care Act case, which is not one of her core areas. It's a Commerce Clause decision. Uh, but she, in for four dissenters, she wrote a a very scholarly and powerful dissent uh, that is more consistent with the scope of the Commerce Clause based on prior decisions than the majorities. She's always been one that's been very respectful of precedent. And I think here, no one does a better job than she did in the Affordable Care Act case, really paying close attention to precedent and showing where it would lead. In um, Shelby County, uh, which was the Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act case, she wrote a very cogent uh, dissent. She also read it from the bench because it was such an important decision in which she said that the Voting Rights Act still has a role to play in uh, today's voting procedures, that there are still vestiges of racial discrimination uh, that need remediation and that need oversight. And uh, the court's decision in that case essentially gutted the Voting Rights Act's teeth in enforcing those kinds of norms. And she had a, it wasn't glib, it was in fact quite poignant example where she said, throwing out the Voting Rights Act's protection is like throwing away an umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm because you're no longer getting wet. And uh, that was entirely her point, that we still need the Voting Rights Act's protections. I think those dissents all resonated with people. They may resonate with future courts, too. Touching on a few different areas of the law, for which Justice Ginsburg is perhaps a bit less known, one criminal law and and procedure. Her legacy there is somewhat understated and perhaps in some quarters criticized, but two of your contributors, Lisa Griffin and Aziz Huck, write that though her contributions might be a bit less well-known, they're also very important. Um, What uh, what are some examples of her her legacy in this context? Her legacy in the criminal context is more muted than her more well-known areas. And in part, um, that could be because the criminal context is already so crowded with constraints, uh, with both political and legal constraints. Um, however, she, her opinions do tend to, um, to, to be synthesized into a coherent strand, and that is that she tends to focus on procedural rights and the criminal process. So, for example, she um, wrote an opinion that promoted access to counsel for indigent defendants. Uh, that was a case called Maples. And uh, she wrote a dissent in a case called Connick versus Thompson, which argued that the uh, prosecution's withholding of evidence deprived the defendant of his fair opportunity to present a fair defense in his case. So her efforts in the criminal arena have been largely procedural rather than substantive. They have been ensuring 
that criminal defendants get a fair shake and fair opportunities to present their defenses. If they ultimately lose, I think she's okay with that, um, as long as the uh, process itself has been fair. Speaking of procedure, you write in an essay that you contributed to the work that development in, in civil procedure, doctrine, and, and federal jurisdiction are very big parts of Justice Ginsburg's legacy, or, or will be. This is, of course, no accident, as you mentioned at the top of our interview. The justice was particularly interested in these areas of the law. What, uh, what drew her to them, and what are her most important contributions here? So I think she has a special affinity for civil procedure because procedure is both technical, so she can really get into the weeds and really learn it and figure out how it works and then apply it. Uh, And it's particularly powerful. Um, You can have a dog of a case and win on the procedure, or you can have a slam dunk case and lose if you don't know the procedure right. And I think she, more than any other justice on the court, understands the uh, real power that procedure holds and the importance of making sure that procedure is fair and right. Um, She taught civil procedure when she was uh, a a new law professor at Rutgers. She was uh, interested in her scholarship. She wrote a seminal piece on the full faith and credit clause. She wrote, she went to Sweden to learn Swedish civil procedure. And she wrote the definitive treatise on Swedish uh, civil procedure. Uh, So I think she got into, into it because of those uh, sort of idiosyncrasies of procedure and she'll have an enduring legacy in the area. I and mean, she's, she's written tons of opinions on civil procedure, both majority opinions that have informed uh, the way the doctrines have developed and dissents that may ultimately come back to be majority opinions at some point in the future. She's particularly known for her work on jurisdiction and particularly personal jurisdiction. And uh, she's been effectively the leader of the court's um, wing on procedure issues and jurisdiction issues. Broadening out beyond the, the look at constitutional law, could you tell me some of the ways that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was important to the court and the country just beyond the development of constitutional doctrine? I think she brings a very workmanlike attitude to the court. Even when some other author is writing an opinion, I think she's able to influence that opinion in different ways, either by having that opinion give uh, greater appreciation for the role of precedent uh, or for the role of enabling different law-speaking institutions to have space to be able to contribute to the legal conversation. Um, I think that um, off the court... She's been a hero to millions of people across the nation, uh, probably for her sort of quiet forcefulness. Dolly Lithwick uh, has this really great phrase capturing her personality as a ninja librarian. And, um, And I think that's right, that she's sort of the antithesis of the notorious RBG, which has become her avatar in popular media culture. She's always polite and underspoken and uh, yet still forceful and thoughtful and 
right on many occasions. And I think she's she's led the charge in an area uh, of gender equality that didn't always have many people on her side um, when she began that charge, but that has become uh, essentially a, a position that to oppose would be unthinkable in today's society. So like everybody jumped on the Ginsburg bandwagon eventually, and we're all Ginsburgians mm-hmm. now. Um, right. And so I think that, you know, that kind of pedigree is both captivating and admirable. And I think a lot of people really respect her for it, especially given that she's this sort of quiet, understated, proper person. Obviously, this book is about the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but she remains an active member of the court for however long her tenure continues. What do you think are areas she might hope to still refine in the areas of constitutional law? Are there any legal trends she might be worried about or or things she might still hope to to do before she retires her position? I think the abortion doctrine has developed in a way that Ginsburg is skeptical of. Uh, it's, It's been founded around due process, um, and I think that Ginsburg would tend to view it as more of an equal protection issue. Um, in fact, in, in some cases, she has tried to frame it that way, uh, like in the struck brief that she wrote, uh, which is that uh, denying a woman's right to choose denies her the same opportunities to reach full citizenship stature. Um, So I think she would uh, like to couch abortion jurisprudence in a different constitutional vantage point than what has developed. We'll see if she can uh, manage to sway the other justices to do so in the future. Um, Similarly, I'd say she has the same perspective with gay rights. Those cases have also sort of been uh, grounded in due process rather than equal protection. And here I think she's actually had a little bit more success changing the focus. The, the same-sex marriage opinion, Obergefell, which was written by Justice Kennedy, is still grounded in due process, but it gives some reference uh, to the path-marking decisions Ginsburg achieved in women's rights and based on equal protection. And I think that, you know, had Ginsburg written the opinion, she might have written it somewhat differently and emphasized those uh, equal protection strands more heavily. But I'm confident that uh, she helped make those decisions appear uh, in the in the Kennedy opinion. And um, perhaps in a future case, she will try to tease that out and, and make it more of a forefront uh, that gay rights is really about equal protection as much as it is about uh, due process. And she'll always be remembered for VMI and the cases that she won at the ACLU. She'll be remembered for her procedure cases, of course, and uh, probably some of her more enduring dissents like Ledbetter and Shelby County and Carhartt. Um, and of course, she'll be remembered for sort of her more outsized uh, personalities and uh, the following that she's gained off the court. Uh, but but I, I hope that people end up viewing her less as sort of the notorious RBG and more as simply Justice Ginsburg. Um, it's in that role that she has made 
the biggest difference and where she will have had the most enduring impact. I think your book goes a long way to to achieve that end. It really humanizes her and presents her as a person um, more than, than an icon. It was certainly an enjoyable read. Professor Scott Dotson, congratulations again on the book, and thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Brian. It was a pleasure. And with that, our program for October 14th, 2016 is complete. I'd like to thank this opportunity one more time to tender sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Mr. Ian Fine from Oric and Professor Scott Dodson from UC Hastings Law. I'd like to thank you as well, our listener, for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget that one hour of CLE credit can be yours for listening. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'd like to thank also members of my production team here, including Nicholas Sonnenberg, Ellen Ireland, Dominic Fracasa, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>